My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with France Trepanier and Chris Creighton-Kelly. To those of us who are not ourselves artists, it's common to think of the arts as all of those practices through which people create the work that we look at, listen to, and otherwise experience as art. This is true, but it misses the fact that these practices, particularly when done by professional artists, are generally embedded in a system of institutions, or parts of institutions. An arts system, as today's guests put it. In addition to working artists, this encompasses all of the institutions and professionals responsible for curating, hosting, presenting, circulating, reviewing, studying, and, perhaps most importantly, funding the arts. This system exerts tremendous power over what arts practices get treated as legitimate and important, and to a significant extent shapes what arts can even happen in a sustainable way. In Canada, as in many places, the art system has its roots in a deliberate and conscious nation-building project. The Royal Commission on National Development in the Arts, Letters, and Sciences, commonly known as the Massey Commission after Chair and future Governor General Vincent Massey, released its final report in 1951. In the words of one critical observer writing in 2018, the Massey Report is, quote, an out-of-date document premised on elitist, Eurocentric, 19th-century notions of culture, but that, in the strangest and most distressing manner, continues to define Canadian society, end quote. In the decades following its release, there was substantial state support for the development of a wide range of cultural institutions related to visual arts, music, theatre, and lots more. The arts system that resulted and that, despite ongoing challenges over several decades, continues to exist today, is one that centers whiteness and elite European notions of what constitutes art. Franz Trepanier is an artist and curator of Ganyan Gehaga and French ancestry. Chris Creighton-Kelly is also an artist and is of Anglo-Indian descent. Both have extensive history working within the core of the Canadian art system, including for the Canada Council, as cultural diplomats in Paris, and, in Trepanier's case, for the Department of Canadian Heritage, while still strongly identifying with small arts organizations. They currently live in the territory of the Lekwungen and Saanich people on Vancouver Island. At various points over the course of their careers, their work has included efforts to push for equity and decolonization in the arts system. In 2016, they decided to begin their own independent project to support the goals of bringing Indigenous art to the centre of the Canadian arts system, and additionally of nurturing and fostering work by artists of colour. They called the project Primary Colours, Couleur Primaire. After a process of consulting with elders and artists from a range of different communities, they hosted a large number of Indigenous artists and artists of colour at what they've come to call the Lekwungen Gathering, a four-day summit in Victoria in 2017. It served as a baseline and as a starting point. They have developed ways of work for the project that they describe as not indigenous, but indigenous-influenced. They strive to work in ways that are intercultural or interracial, intersectional, intergenerational, and interdisciplinary. 
They center values of respect, responsibility, relevance, relationality, and reciprocity. Over the subsequent years, they have held roundtables, workshops, residencies, artist presentations, and other forms of engagement with artists and communities in different parts of the country. They have commissioned essays, articles, videos, a podcast, and various other kinds of work. They've also engaged in an ongoing way with institutions within the art system, to push for anti-racist and decolonial shifts in the system in terms of funding priorities, program design, and the various other elements that comprise it. They've given seed money to what they call incubation projects, as a way to kickstart decolonial and anti-racist work in the arts in specific communities. And perhaps least visibly, but most importantly, they brought together countless indigenous and racialized artists who didn't previously know each other, and set the groundwork for all manner of collaborations, shared projects, and relationships going far beyond Primary Colors itself. I speak with Trepanier and Creighton Kelly about the art system in Canada, and about the work they're doing through Primary Colors to shift it in decolonial and anti-racist directions. My name is Francis Beignet. I'm an artist, a curator of Ghanaian Gehaga and French ancestry. I've been working in the arts for many decades now in different capacities. I want to locate myself here on the land because for the past 20 years, Chris and I have been living and working on the traditional territory of the Lepoingen and the Sanic people, which are members of the larger Coast Salish family. So we're on Vancouver Island. My name is Chris Creighton Kelly. I'm a person of Anglo-Indian descent, which means that my family's been in India for over 300 years. Sometimes I feel the colonial aspects of the last 500 years and being the colonizer and the colonized both exist inside of me, inside of our family. I have worked as well for decades in the art system. Both of us have worked inside, including working as cultural diplomats in Paris, working inside the Canada Council where we met, also worked for Canadian Heritage. But we also very strongly identify ourselves with small arts organizations who we work for or volunteer time for because we believe that the essence of artistic practice lies with artists and artist communities, not in institutions, even though we have to deal with those institutions. We came at the desire of creating this initiative, Primary Colors Couleur Primaire, out of many years, decades of experience doing equity work working in the interstitial space between communities and institutions in the arts, principally. And we wanted to bring Indigenous art at the center of the Canadian art system. This is one of the goals of Primary Colors. We believe in the centrality of these art practices because they are from here. They belong to this land and they need to be placed in the center of our art system. And we also believe in the necessity of hearing and nurturing and fostering the stories of people of color who are part of imagining the future of this land. The art system, and we think of it as a system. So by the system, I mean the institutions that fund, the discourse that surrounds artistic practice, the nature of our large regional art galleries and theaters and so on that take most of the money. And what we consider to be art in this country, which is very Western European based. So that is a product of colonialism. That is a product of how this country was built. It's still manifest in the way the art system works today. And for that matter, the way Canadian society works today, there's still embedded racism in all of our systems. And then you look around and you realize that there's people here, indigenous people, first of all, that were here for millennia. And then other folks that have arrived from all over the world. I mean, what I'm saying is not 
radical. It's just a fact of life. And yet most of those folks do not see themselves or their art practices reflected in the Canadian art system. What's been involved in turning the impulse at the center of primary colors into a concrete project? I think the first impulse for us was the desire to bring people together. So we started to dream about the possibility of bringing a large number of Indigenous artists and artists of color in a gathering four days together to be able to talk about the issues that people are facing in their practices, in their communities, in the art system as well. And to be able to have that conversation in a way among ourselves, where we didn't have to explain diversity or indigeneity all over again. So the starting point was a different place. And we wanted to actually bring decolonial methodologies in the way that we were hosting people, the way that we were creating space for those conversations to happen the way that we wanted to honor the land on which we were wanting to do the gathering, and also to make sure that we brought the many, many different stories, sometimes dissonant stories of this land, of the different places of this land. So one of the first step in that process was for Chris and I to do consultation and to go and talk to elders and to artists in different communities and to listen to the stories of their land and how it shaped up their practices and how their communities were being able to have a vibrant cultural artistic life. We did that in 2016, going in six different communities, spending time with elders and senior artists listening. And that was creating the foundation of the Lekwungen gathering, so the gathering that took place in 2017 in Victoria. We tried to work with certain kind of strategies and certain kind of methodologies. We like to say that our work is Indigenous influenced. We don't have the pretension of saying that, you know, we work with Indigenous protocols, but Indigenous influence protocols. So welcoming, witnessing, honoring, always honoring polyvocality. We don't believe in panels or keynotes or experts. We want to decolonize knowledge. We believe that everyone has something to contribute, no matter who they are. And we use the strategy of lots of planning, but so that improvisation can take place within the planning. We work a lot with the five R's. The five R's are developed by Indigenous people, specifically Linda Twy-Smith and Sean Wilson. And they emphasize ways of working that are not transactional. In other words, that are not capitalist. They're not necessarily even based upon money. And those five R's are respect, responsibility, relevance, relationality, and reciprocity. Again, these are influenced by Indigenous thinking, by Indigenous knowledge, by Indigenous traditions. And we try to bring them into the way we work with our colleagues when we do projects, but also when we interface against the power structures. And we use a vision of abundance. Too much of the discourse within the art system is about scarcity. Indigenous artists don't have enough. Artists of color don't have enough. The art system doesn't have enough. We need more funding. It's a constant complaint. And our approach to it is everything we need is there and we're going to go get it. And we're not going to ask politely for it. We're just going to get it. One of the other things that is worth mentioning here is the posture that we were adopting in terms of gathering the resources we needed. We wanted to break the binary of the us and them, you know, them, the funders, us, the artists. The clients. Um, The clients, yeah. 
and really take a fresh look at this dynamic and realize that in that art psychology, everybody plays their role. So we approached this whole thing in building partnerships instead of being a client because we felt that the funders needed us as much as we needed them. And if we started on a partnership basis, if we started to look at what are the art policy questions that they're dealing with, what are the program design issues that they're struggling with, if we looked at all of these questions, what are the systemic problems that they're trying to solve? And we could therefore bring some of the knowledge of the community and bring it to the funders. So it became much more of a partnership that we've developed with our funders and other contributors. It is a kind of metaphor for the dilemma that we face, at least in the Western world right now, of how to take the activity of community where the expertise is, where the knowledge is, where the lived experience is, and have an impact on governments, institutions, people with power, basically. Just speaking truth to power is not enough. You have to take the expertise to power to change the power structures. So that's one way that we imagine what we're doing. And I think especially now when the expertise does not just lie within communities, but it literally lies in the streets. People are uprising all over North America, all over the world. And that knowledge and expertise that is in those communities has to have an impact on the structures of power and of governance. The other thing that we put in motion fairly early on was conversation with the Lekwungen-speaking people here in Victoria to develop protocols, welcoming protocols. Because we were in this strange position, neither Chris or I are from here. So we were in this awkward position of hosting people on somebody else's land. And we wanted to make sure that we were doing this in the best way possible. So 18 months before the event, we started to talk with some of the cultural keepers of the Lekwungen-speaking people to see how we could develop protocols that would function in a contemporary art scene, in a way, in a gathering of not just Indigenous artists, but artists of color from many different backgrounds and different regions of the country. And yet, at the same time, acknowledging and respecting the local protocols. The other things we do to answer concretely is we hold roundtables in various places across Canada. We do workshops. We just did a massive thing about decolonizing the arts in Victoria that went on for a year. We occasionally do artist presentations where artists come and talk about their work. And we have this twofold program of incubation projects. There are two kinds, one that arises out of a community community is trying to work on something. They have no funds and no access to funds. So we drop very modest amounts of money, four or $5,000, into the project as kind of a Kickstarter. And there's been some that have been Kickstarted and didn't really go anywhere, and others that have gone into a full blaze. We could give you examples of both kinds. And then we have something called an incubation initiative where we recognize needs in communities and that the community itself is not really generating anything. So we go in and try to make something happen. And we usually do that with some kind of institutional partner. We're working with the National Arts Center right now on a project so that there are resources that we can leverage out into the community. We've held two residencies at the Banff Center. We commission work. Yeah. We commission essays, articles, videos, a podcast. So it's a multiplicity, I think, of tools and approaches that we use to do the work and always keeping the centrality of the land. So really working from a Canadian context, 
honoring the history of here and, again, deeply rooted in the Canadian arts ecology with a strong focus on indigeneity. And as you can imagine, that Canadian art system that Paul's referred to is really shifting right now. There are already shifts that were happening because of reconciliation and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and on and on and on, the formation of an Indigenous section at the Canada Council. And all of these changes have been exacerbated and made more complicated by, first of all, the pandemic, which has really changed things in the art world, but also the BLM uprising. Uh, BLM, of course, being Black Lives Matter. Which have had an impact on how we understand uh, colonial history and the construction of the Canadian art system and what needs to be dealt with with anti-Black racism within the art system. In terms of the incubation projects that you mentioned, you said that some have been more successful and some less so. Tell me about one of the more successful ones. This is probably the most successful of our incubation projects. At the Lekwungen Gathering, we invited people from across Canada and a few people from Vancouver. The people from Vancouver, I think a couple who knew each other, but mostly who didn't know each other, continued to meet after the Lekwungen Gathering. And they started something called Done With Diversity, because they were really tired of this, you know, inclusion, uh, equity, diversity language that the Canadian art system, for that matter, Canada, throughout its bureaucracies, uses. And they started doing consultations. We threw them a tiny bit of money to start doing it, and then they held circles and discussions about what was happening. And that grew and grew, and they were able to leverage with a sympathetic ear of the city of Vancouver, one of the persons that works there, threw them a little bit more money. So they took something like four or five grand and leveraged it into $20,000. And then they started doing neighborhood conversations with artists of color within the frame of their neighborhood and indigenous artists as well that live in Vancouver, which formulate a kind of an urban indigenous arts community because there's people in Vancouver from all across the territory. And that was very successful, too, and started animating. So then they began a conversation with an organization called the Vancouver Foundation, which funds different kinds of things, nonprofits, but it does have an active role in the arts. And the next thing I heard recently, last year, they've leveraged out $300,000 from the Vancouver Foundation to work on a three-year project, it's $100,000 a year, on how criteria for funding the arts can change. So this is a really good example of a project that is not just window dressing. And I think the success on top of the resources that they were able to secure is the potential impact of that pilot project, because in a way they are reframing the funding system or a funding system by completely looking at the mechanics of how the funding is attributed and even how people have to report on these funds. So really looking at, you know, the whole process from the application form, the criteria to the very end where you're reporting on the grant and what becomes a successful project. And I think the potential of that work for the rest of the funding system Mm -hmm. in Canada is huge. People in the bureaucracy are watching this project to see what comes out of it. Based on what you've heard from the many indigenous and racialized artists that you've talked to in different parts of the country about these things, what have emerged as the key changes that need to be made to the art system in Canada? The first step is to recognize the systemic racism that exists within cultural institutions and the funding system. This is something that we're starting to hear more and more as a result of the uprising and the conversations that are happening across the world right now. In Canada, the art system was a really racist system, actually. It was based on the ideology that art had to be Western-based. 
at the moment where in this country we created the infrastructure, you know, the networks of concert halls, of libraries, of art galleries, funding the national ballet, the symphonies, all of that was understood as European art forms to be practiced in this country. In that period, while we were building this system, we completely ignored indigenous arts. Actually, there were no professional indigenous artists because in that period, the practice of indigenous people, the cultural and artistic practice were banned as part of the Indian Act. I think more and more cultural institutions in this country, including the big ones like the National Arts Center and others, are starting to realize and to recognize the racism that is contained in their very foundation. So recognizing that is the first step to addressing the problem. And then to be able to look at measures to shift that situation. What goes along with what she said is also the history of the inadequacy of multiculturalism in Canada, which has attempted to figure out what to do with these others, and I'm using the word in quotes, who don't fit into the European system. And by trying to deal with that through multiculturalism, those communities, those artists have been marginalized even further. But they're given the crumbs that drop from the table. They're arguing about things like access and inclusion. From an indigenous perspective, taking the analogy of your house, you've got these people knocking at your door, barging in, taking your house, starting to occupy every room of the house and pushing you to the garage. And even in the backyard, hosting their friends and having big parties. And one day, out of the goodness of their heart, they come to you and they say, hey, you know what? We'll include you. Come and have a bite. Meanwhile, it was your house all along. So this idea of including Indigenous artists and people into the Canadian systems, the colonial systems, is something that is not desirable. It's easy to say that the system needs to change so that whiteness and European art practices are not centered. But it presents a whole bunch of problems that are difficult and complex and nuanced to answer. Because if you're going to take Indigenous practices seriously, and we do, If you're going to say everything else that arrived to this territory came from somewhere else in the world, including the European ones, and if you're going to say that something like artistic excellence, again, a word I'll use in quotations, is culture-specific, well, that talks about a very complex way of adjudicating that. And it talks about how do we understand different practices and how do we fund this one but not that one without going to a racist system. Because no matter how all this shakes down, Some artistic practices will get funded and others won't. Some artists will get funded and others won't. Some artistic practices will be written about and lionized and have a discourse around them and others won't. So to begin that next stage of conversation, we need to think in decolonial terms. And what that means is re-looking at the history and kind of starting again. How did this history get built? What would a Canadian art system look like if we designed it today? In terms of both primary colors work and in terms of particularly grassroots work happening in other contexts in the arts system in Canada, what do you find hopeful? What I find very encouraging from what we've been witnessing in the past few months is the shift in terminology in the mainstream. I find it very encouraging to hear things like white supremacy and white people recognizing their long-standing privileges, their complicity, and even being able to talk about white fragility, to be able to have them involved in the work. 
some of those conversations have been happening in indigenous circles and artists of color circles for a long, long time. But I think the movement into the mainstream of conversation about systemic racism, about the anti-black racism of the art system, and all of these terms is very hopeful. There are people, we don't think like this, but there are people that legitimately raise the issue that this stuff appearing in the mainstream really means nothing because the powers that are in place are not going to change. And it's just a new form of co-optation and a new form of, you know, taking things from community and using it for their own needs and desires to keep oppression going. But that's a kind of hegemonic belief that provides a theory of change where no change is possible. And so that's why we don't actually align there. But I think it's important to mention that. And the second thing, just to put a little bit of a damper on it, is not to be pessimistic or suggest that no change is possible, but just more the glacial rate at which things are going to change. I mean, when I first started working at the council and even predating that for a good half a decade, these issues became nascent in the early 80s and the mid 80s. Where are we now? 2020. So it's almost something like 50 years that Indigenous artists, Black artists, artists of color have been talking about these issues. And we're just now beginning to kind of look at the roots of the problem, at the decolonial methodologies that are going to be needed. So while I share France's optimism that things can change, I obviously want to live in a world where things can change. I just want to temper with those two comments. And then to ask about what I myself find optimistic I do see what Carl said, but I also see that, you know, demographics are changing in this country. And for millennials and millennial artists, they just take a lot of this stuff for granted. And just as in the BLM uprisings, they're not willing to take answers that don't make sense. Like, oh, well, we would fund the program, but we don't have enough money or, you know, we will get to that in the next fiscal period. They're just too impatient for that stuff. And that's really encouraging to me. When young people are impatient, that's when change happens. And that's what's happening in many places in the world, despite the rise of the alt-right everywhere and nationalism and racism and xenophobia. Despite all that, I think there are very promising trends. In terms of the work of Primary Colors, one thing that we haven't talked about in this interview, because it doesn't fit a formal category, it's such an informal kind of thing, is the relationality between the various hundreds of people now starting to be in the thousands that we work with. They have found and formed new relationships with one another. The artistic collaborations that have come out of people that met at the Lokongan gathering are astounding to us. And we're not trying to sort of take credit for it. I or mean, at the Banff Residency. Or the Banff Residency. It's not so much what we did, but what these artists are doing together when they meet other mid-career or senior artists that they didn't even know about before. And so that's formulating and beginning to create curatorial projects, artistic projects, collaborative projects, research projects that go to the essence of the Canadian body politic. You have been listening to my interview with France Trepanier and Chris Creighton-Kelly about Primary Colors Couleur Primaire. To learn more about it, go to primary-colors.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.